Hi, I'm Tanya Roll, and welcome to the Money Makers Podcast, brought to you by Sophia. Sophia is an exciting new learning platform for women with a goal to increase diversity and inclusion in early stage investing. This podcast is a finance, innovation, and investing show for amazing women everywhere of all ages. Each fortnight, we will feature an inspiring woman from the investing and finance sector or a female founder with a special focus on Asia. Our guest today is Sabrina Mastopo, the founder and CEO of Krakakoa. Welcome, Sabrina. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. Can I start today's amazing podcast with you just by asking for a quick introduction of yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Sabrina and I am the, uh, as you mentioned, founder and CEO of Krakakoa. We are a chocolate company based in Indonesia. And prior to this, uh, I was a consultant in my former life for six years with McKinsey & Company. Thank you. You're originally from Indonesia? I am. I, I grew up in Singapore though, but I was born in Indonesia. Uh-huh. Ah, okay. Singapore, where I am. Am I right in thinking you studied, uh, amongst other things, agricultural studies at university? That's right. I am one of those very rare people that I think majored in something and continue to pursue that for the rest of my career. So I majored in international agriculture and world development. Fortunate to work on the topic within my time in McKinsey and now continuing to work on that topic um, through the world of chocolate as well. Excellent. And what got you interested in agricultural studies? Uh, that's a good question. So I, you know, having grown up in Singapore, obviously, I think this is very far from what you would think about um, when you think about yes. agriculture. But I grew up with stories, actually. So my father worked in the agriculture sector. So he did coffee trading. He worked with animal feed, shrimp farming, a few other things as well. And I think uh, growing up, I heard stories about how, oh, you know, um, uh, different issues, right? Like our coffee sector in Indonesia, Vietnam overtaking the Indonesian coffee sector, our productivity being very low, farmers um, having a lot of issues. So I grew up with that um, without any knowledge about what the root causes were, but I was very attracted, I think, uh, with the stories of how we could potentially be better. And I like the sciences. I grew up enjoying doing well in my science subjects. And I actually did a diploma in biotechnology, after which I realized I really did not like lab work. I like sciences, but I did not like being in a lab all day. And it was quite like a serendipitous encounter when I was flipping through a course catalog and trying to figure out what do I want to do with my life and what do I want to major in in college. But I came across this course, International Agriculture and Rural Development. And people say, talk about an aha moment or a light bulb moment. And it was really that feeling for me where that just resonated and that was like, that feels right. So I went ahead and I pursued that much to the guest of my father, actually, because I think he knew how difficult it is to work in the industry. And I think being a woman as well, um, being a woman that's grown up um, primarily in Singapore, knowing nothing about the agriculture industry, I think he was very hesitant as well. I was like, what are you doing? Are you sure you know what you're doing? So I minored in food science to kind of appease him to say, okay, if this whole agriculture thing doesn't work out, my fallback plan is that I have a, you know, a minor in food science at least. But fortunately, it did work out. And fortunately as well, that backup plan with um, majoring in food science came in handy with starting a chocolate company. So everything kind of went according to plan, I guess. That is amazing. Oh my goodness. I did not know this. That is such an amazing way of pacifying your father, first and foremost, very smart. Um, (laughs) And then also choosing something or, you know, your backup plan actually being something that's really helped with Krakakoa. And we'll get to Krakakoa in a minute. So I love that story, the backstory. So once you finished your studies, I note that you spent some time working at Cornell and working at Edinburgh University. 
Uh, I did an internship. So I, uh, funny enough, I talked about not liking lab work, but I could do that during, I guess, during a little bit of pocket money while while I was still in college. So that was uh, the part-time gig that I did while I was still studying. But my first job out of the gates was actually with McKinsey. McKinsey. Okay. So your first job post-graduation was in, was at McKinsey as a consultant. Is that right? Uh, with the, as a research analyst first, and then I transferred to the consulting role. Yeah. Right. Okay. And you were there for six years. Yes, right. And what did you learn there in your role within McKinsey that you took forward to launching your own company and becoming a founder? I think, uh, you know, in the research capacity, I think that provided a very good foundation for understanding how the agriculture sector as a whole worked, because I would do research on a a whole host of different topics relating to agriculture, everything from how commodity markets work to how intervention programs and smallholder farmers work to all sorts of different topics. Um, And then in the consulting track, I think it was more a technical piece. So really thinking about problem solving, how do you dissect a problem, thinking about how you find uh, solutions to a problem, thinking about how you work with different stakeholders as well. So the first half was really focusing on the topic of agriculture. The second part, I think, was, you know, um, sharpening my toolkit, as they say, in terms of how do we take any problem at all and try to find a solution to it. So what did I take away and how did I use that for Coca-Cola? I think the reason why I even managed to start the company or had the audacity to try and start the company was that I truly believe that any problem can be solved, right? And you just have to figure it out. Um, so if you don't know something, it's there are ways and means in which you can find the solution. So I started it, I think, uh, really with a lot of very naive positivity and optimism in the sense that like, yeah, we'll figure it out along the way. And we don't know, but we just have this um, grand plan or this grand ambition about what we want to do. And we'll figure it out. (laughs) I like that. Was there a eureka moment? Because, and the reason I asked that is you're obviously in a very comfortable, safe job at McKinsey, you know, reputable company and very safe. Mm -hmm. And as I well know, and, and you well know now that starting your own company is full of challenges and is less safe um, and more risky. And was this something that you always wanted to do even during your six years at McKinsey? Or was there a eureka moment where you felt safe enough or you felt compelled to um, go into launching Krakakoa? Uh, I would say, no, it wasn't like a huge Eureka moment. And I would say that my personality type as well, uh, I'm very much catered towards the consulting (laughs) profession in the sense that you give recommendations, you don't take a lot of risk and you kind of do analysis and you provide a whole host of uh, different solutions and you say, what are the pros and cons of each one? And you don't really have to make any decisions, right? So actually people talk about the the architect for your typical entrepreneur. I would just say, I'm not that person. Um, So it wasn't one of those things that, you know, I was doing hustle since I was a kid or or anything like that. But I think for me, it was really about a uh, desire to create change in the agriculture industry and the desire to see uh, something happen or things being run in a way that I didn't see um, being run at that point in time. And with McKinsey, the hours are long, the work is challenging and all of that, but I didn't mind working long hours because I really felt that, hey, I'm making a difference towards something that I really cared about. But then what actually eventually moved me out of that space was one day I was kind of thinking about it. Uh, a lot of the projects that we, we did, I think what we did was we gave recommendations, right? But then whether the project actually got implemented or not at the end of the day was out of our hands. So I really started to feel like, okay, if I was not in this position, if it was another associate doing the work, would there be any difference at all? You know, um, 
And really like the answer I came up with is probably not. And what was I creating at the end of the day, uh, thousands and thousands of slides of PowerPoint, right? Which hopefully, you know, led to some good outcome, but then the real tangible output was really PowerPoint slides. So I think I got a little bit, yeah, not frustrated, but I think worn out by that process. And I really wanted to do something where I felt, you know, if I was not doing it, this thing would not exist in the world. So at the same time, I started learning about the cocoa industry, the chocolate industry in Indonesia. And I just felt so pulled towards this solutions, like the solutions space is so simple, right? In terms of what we're trying to achieve and how we can improve the life of farmers and how we can create a, a product that is of great quality. Why isn't anyone doing this? And initially, this is was the idea that I took around to other chocolate companies, right? And say like, hey, you can do this thing uh, in a different way and you can have all this impact on the life of farmers. And everybody said, that's a good idea, but that's not what we do. And I think at the end of the day, what really compelled me was just, it's such a good idea. Why isn't anybody doing this? And if no one wants to do this, I need to at least try and do it myself and see if it works out. So it was really from that perspective that I was so drawn to the potential of uh, what could be that I said, okay, I need to give this a try. If not, then I think it'll be something that I regret. Yeah, I understand that. Interesting that you, before launching Krakakoa, you went to pitch it to other chocolate companies. Was there a common theme from them in regards to why they were saying no? I mean, they were all saying it's interesting, but yeah. what do you think prevented them from getting behind it and actually doing something with it? Uh, I think it was just not within their sphere of competency. So the cocoa industry is very fragmented. So if you're a cocoa trader, what you know how to do very well is work with farmers, procure things for them and make sure you um, hedge your prices and sell the stuff that you bought at a higher price, right? If you're a cocoa mill, what you need to do very well is be very efficient in your production and processing and make sure that your machines run well and your factory's running at a certain level of capacity. If you are a chocolate brand like a Nestle, you need to know how to do your sales and marketing very well. So it's completely different competencies and skill sets um, when we talked about integrating the value chain. So your chocolate companies by and large don't really know how to do farmer training programs and your cocoa mills don't really know how to do sales and marketing and branding. Uh, so I think that's why there was hesitation, right? Thought it was good, but that's not what they did. Yeah, that makes absolute sense. And, and obviously in one respect, smart by them to understand their, their skill sets, but it also provided you with an opportunity to do something about it yourself mm -hmm. um, and launch Krakakoa. And I'd love to now dive a bit deeper in, into Krakakoa. Now, I should mention at this juncture for the benefit of our audience that I am actually an investor into Krakakoa. And the last thing I ate before I recorded this show <laughs> was two chunks of Krakakoa. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> the 100%. Because I thought that I should have that just to give me the energy and the sugar rush that I need to get, through the, to get through the afternoon. It's mid-afternoon <laughs> here in Singapore. It's very hot. I needed like a pick me up. So Perfect. I reached for my Krakakoa. And yeah, so let's take a deeper dive into Krakakoa now. So for the purpose, for the benefit of those on the, listening in today who don't know what Krakakoa is, would you please just give a, an overview of the business? Sure thing. Um, so we are what we call a farmer to bar chocolate companies, not that we turn farmers into chocolate bars, but we believe the start of what creates beautiful, sustainable products really lies with the activities that we do with the farmers. So we're fully integrated. We do everything from training the farmers, providing equipment for them, sourcing the beans from them at a premium price, uh, converting the beans or so manufacturing the chocolate, converting the beans from, you know, cocoa beans into chocolate bars in our own factory, which we run. Uh, and we also do the branding, retailing, marketing and selling 
selling of the products, so fully integrated. And we have four different missions as a company. And the first one is really to empower smallholder farmers because we believe that farming is extremely hard work. If you've ever been out in the fields under the hot sun for a day, you would know that they deserve to make much more money than they do today. And at the same time, in a country like Indonesia, where a third of the population is employed in the agriculture sector, we need to think about how to change things in the agriculture industry and really provide meaningful uh, employment through agriculture in order to change and develop the country as a whole. Uh, secondly, we believe that um, sustainability in the farming sector is really important. So lots of times I think there's a conversation about which is more important, providing jobs or keeping forests uh, and trees standing. And I think we don't, what we believe is not necessarily that there's a trade-off between the two, right? That you can keep forests and trees standing and also provide jobs for people and also food for people who need it. Uh, thirdly, we think that some of the best tasting chocolate uh, deserve to come from Indonesia. So as the sixth largest producer of cocoa beans in the world, we think it's a shame that people still think that the best chocolate in the world maybe is, you know, comes from Europe or well, mainly European countries, but you don't have a single uh, cocoa plantations in, in those European countries. So we want to create a sense of pride in that uh, the country of origin can also produce the final product that's world class and can compete with the best that's out there. And lastly, when it comes to manufacturing, economic contribution to the country, that's an important component as well that we believe takes a country uh, up the economic ladder. So that's why we do the processing and the manufacturing of the chocolate and the final product in Indonesia. And we hire mainly a factory that employs women uh, to process and manufacture the chocolate products. So that's what we do. And that's why I invested. <laughs> it's amazing. It's so amazing. Your vision and your beliefs and values at Krakakara have always stood out to me because I wholeheartedly agree. You as a business owner, your investors, but also for the people it serves, both internally, so your farmers and your workers, but also externally for the consumers, people that are enjoying the chocolate. And I love that. I absolutely love that vision and the mission. The Money Makers podcast is brought to you by Sophia, the place for women to learn, invest and change the world. Sophia is an education platform for women, providing much needed courses on personal finance and investing with a goal to increase diversity and inclusion in early stage investing. Go to sophiawomen.com and use promo code podcast 10 to receive a 10% discount on all of our courses. Can we talk about the the training program that the farmers undergo? So I read or I remember from due diligence when we looked at Krakakura as an investment that it was a really high number of farmers that you were working with, like maybe even up to a thousand. Is mm -hmm. that right? Yeah, we've provided yes. training for over a thousand farmers at this point in time. Uh, so we teach them um, organic farm management practices. In Indonesia, sometimes the controls over the types of pesticides that you can use is not as stringent as it could be. So this is very much a health and safety concern, not just for uh, the consumers, but also for the farmers themselves. So we just have a zero tolerance policy and say, please farm organically. And we teach them how to make their own uh, compost, their own biochar, their own biopesticides, such that uh, we're Firstly, not only is it safer for them, they don't have to buy any of these inputs, right? So they're a lot more self-sufficient. Um, we teach them good agriculture practices as well. This is key in terms of improving productivity in the farms. So cocoa farmers in Indonesia, roughly the average productivity is about two to 300 kilos per hectare. Uh, the potential is about two tons per hectare. So they can 10X their productivity on the farms if they just knew how to do things properly. So we try to uh, equip them 
them with the right knowledge in order to do that. And we also teach them conservation practices because that's important. A lot of the farmers that we work with are around national park areas. And sometimes you can understand uh, why maybe sustainability is not top of their agenda when they're thinking about how do they put their kids through school. But we want to make them understand that they are the guardians and the stewards of the landscapes that they work in. They are the ones who are going to be responsible for making sure that this is a place that remains uh, sustainable for future generations, right? Uh, what they do with the forest affects their water table and their watershed and um, the, you know, how much clean drinking water they have, uh, things like that, which they may not be so aware about. That's what we try to get them to appreciate um, why sustainability is important, not just because it's the right thing to do, but really because it benefits them and the community and their uh, children in the long run as well. Yeah, absolutely. So it's the long game as opposed to the short game. And you're right, that's super hard to be um, thinking about when you have very short term needs, but a great program for them to be part of. Um, was it particularly hard when you first started with this very, you know, very different way of farming for them, I'm sure? And did you come across any challenges in that regard? And, and how did you overcome those? Uh, yes, I think it was actually the fact that like my Indonesian capabilities when I started was not at the level that it is today. So communication. <laughs> and I didn't quite know where to start even. It, how I got to work with my very first community of farmers was I had a helper working in uh, my house in Indonesia. And I literally asked her, do you grow cocoa in your village? And she said, yes. And I was like, please take me to your village. Um, so there I was this girl from the city showing up in the village and everybody just staring at me because obviously I look very different. I talk very different. I dress very different. And I was met with a lot of uh, very rightfully so uh, skepticism, right? Mm. And like a suspicion as well. Like who is this person and what does she want? <laughs> um, so initially what I did was just like, I'm just here to buy your beans. Um, and I said, I I shared a little bit about the plans, about training programs and all of that, but I could see their eyes kind of glossing over and it was not just sinking. It was not sinking in. So I said, okay, I would like to buy beans and I will pay this amount of money for it, which is much um, higher than what they used to. So everybody got excited about that. So initially the interaction with the farmers uh, started from that. So trust building. And over time, I understood why I think it was hard for farmers to trust outsiders because they have been subjected to so many instances of people just taking advantage of them. Yep. You hear stories of people saying like, oh yeah, at some point in time, uh, some you know melon guy came over and said like, oh, I'll buy all the melons in the village at this price. Um, and then we ran out of melons to sell to him. And then he said, oh, I I have melon seedlings to sell to all of you. Uh, and they bought it and the guy never came back to buy the melons afterwards, you know, things like that. And uh, they are always consistently facing risk, right? Price volatility, for example, they don't know how much they are able to sell the commodities for when it comes to harvest time. So they're very, very uh, skeptical, uh, careful, suspicious, I think, of things that are new. Uh, so it took a while for me, I think, to get in there to understand how they thought and how they worked and how to build trust with them. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine how that took some time. And presumably your your PASA is uh, significantly improved now and you're fully conversing with them now on a Oh, that's a stretch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's significantly better. I, I wouldn't go fluent. I, I can say I can I can make my points. Uh, I can okay. make my points. <laughs> Um, you mentioned, which I think is a really important point, you mentioned that you paid the initial connection with the farmers, you were, you paid, you purchased some beans above the sort of going price. Mm -hmm. And would I be right in suggesting that continues to be the case for Krakakoa? 
Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so we pay a price of up to 60,000 a kilo uh, Indonesian rupiah for the beans. And the market price is anywhere between, in the last eight years, um, 18 to 41,000 per kilo. So this is significantly higher than any of the premiums that comes with certifications, higher than your fair trade premiums, than your rainforest premiums and all of that. Um, and we think that this is the price that farmers deserve. We're asking a lot from farmers, right? From the sustainability criteria and standards that we put in place to the quality requirements that we have as well. Um, so I think it's a fair price to pay. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why my team decided to invest into Krakako too. Um, that was one of the reasons at least. And I wonder how that impacts, because as you just mentioned, there's your standards are high in terms of sustainability. Mm -hmm. um, does the overprice, you paying more than others are paying for the beans, does that compensate for your standards or high standards or an extra work that they're needing to do on the sustainability front? And does that result in lots of farmers wanting to work with Krakakoa? Uh, does it result in lots of farmers wanting to work with us? Yes. Um, but does it mean that they want to continue to work with us after they understand the requirements? That depends. Mm -hmm. So we found that uh, with some farmers, and this is a complicated question because it touches on everything from uh, what are the alternative sources of income to what does the social economic uh, structure of their household looks like, you know, in terms of where do they have additional people who can help out in the farms and all of that. So the farms who continue to work with us have figured out a way to make it work. So predominantly um, a majority of their sources of income comes from cocoa and they've set up their structure in a way that within their own households, they can manage the additional work that comes with farming organically, right? They don't have to hire additional labor outside. So we find that it has worked well with a good number of farmers, but for some of the farmers, um, it just doesn't work out well for them, even with the higher prices. And it just makes more sense for them to do other activities or just sell unfermented low quality beans because it does require added work to go into the farms to make sure that the quality is good to do the fermentation and so on. So I would say we provide an option to farmers and the ones who take it, then that's the ones who benefit from the structure that we put in place. But it's not for every single farmer. So it's by no means the one solution that there is to solve the agriculture problem. Yeah, I can completely understand that. Um, what does the future look like? What does the next one, two years and the plans look like for Krakakoa? We're getting a lot more interest from B2B. So we've traditionally been a B2C company selling a, a branded product, but I think a lot more people are interested in ensuring their supply chain is very sustainable, it's traceable. So that's where I think over the next couple of years, we'll be moving or doing a lot more activities um, in really the B2B space. And at the same time, we recognize that our supply chain, we're sourcing cocoa right now from the same communities that grow other things as well. They're growing vanilla, they're growing coffee, they're growing pepper. We're selling it to um, buyers and channels and supermarkets who are selling these same products, right? The coffee, the vanilla, the spices. So I think over the next couple of years, that's potentially something that we could start doing as well, thinking about how to integrate other commodities into our supply chain, whether it's under a Krakakoa brand or whether it's under another brand, that's something that I'm not so sure how that would look like, but I think it just leverages a lot of the capabilities that we've already built. Yeah. And the relationships that you have with yeah. farmers, which has taken time and a lot of input on your part and, and obviously their part and trust, like you mentioned. So yeah, that's a great idea. Um, for Krakakoa, is it really a, an Asian focus or is it global? 
we are exporting to Europe, to New Zealand. It's still, I would say 90% of our sales is still in the Asia Pacific region, but we're seeing interest from uh, European buyers uh, on the B2B side, especially. I think that's an appreciation and increased emphasis and focus on sustainable supply chains, uh, particularly from Western buyers. And I think that's where in the future, it will probably be a little bit more diversified in terms of our geographical footprint as well. Yeah, that makes Sense. Well, I'm a huge lover of both you, Sabrina, and Krakakoa and the chocolates. Um, it's my afternoon snack, so I urge everyone to try it. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Really enjoyed chatting with you. Really, really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Money Makers podcast, brought to you by Sophia the education platform for women that increases diversity in early stage investing. Visit sophiawomen.com and use promo code PODCAST10 to receive a 10% discount off all of our courses. Learn, invest, and change the world.